Listening Dog Media. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Mm. Ah, ouais. <laughs> so, I've, I've done. How to DJ. D- How to DJ. DJ. How to DJ. Learn to count to four and have good taste. There you go. <laughs> Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is How to DJ. Well, I didn't know what I was doing, but I didn't care. Yes, it's definitely had an impact, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything. How to DJ. A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds, and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of forty-five. Yes, I have got all these things out that are supposed to be to do with this music-y thought lark, but oh dear, let's see where this goes. And my guest for this episode is a six times world snooker champion. And that's all I wanted to do. It became a total obsession. And I think for people who become very good at something, it's got to be that way. There's no half measures. He's a member of the band Utopia Strong. So we've got the album. But obviously, you're going to need to go out on the road and do gigs to promote it. And I sat there going, what? A radio presenter. What you do, Chris, you basically you create a universe, whereas all I wanted to do was go, here's another one of my favourite records. And the author of Medical Grade Music. I, I can't apologise to, to the people that, that hurt enough. That, that's the one regret I've got. And that was when my life just went even weirder than it was playing at the Crucible. Steve Davis, welcome to How To DJ. Thank you very much, Chris. I feel like the way you've introduced me there, I feel as if I should be qualified, but all of a sudden I'm getting massive imposter syndrome now. It's all it's all starting to become a bit overawing. Yes, I have got all these things out that are supposed to be to do with this music he thought lark, but oh dear, let's see where this goes. <laughs> let's see indeed. Uh, before we get to how the hell did Steve Davis, the snooker player, become a DJ, what music were you into as a kid? I was a child of the prog rock era. And I was absolutely perfectly placed, maybe just on the borders of Kent, to be um, sucking up the Canterbury jazz rock scene, which was the bands like Soft Machine, Hatfield and the North Caravan, Robert Wyatt, and, and obviously Gong as well, to some degree, was starting off in Canterbury. So that was my sort of upbringing. So I was very much a child of that era. And there were obviously other musics available, but I really loved the Canterbury scene was, uh, was big in my mind. And I just, I especially like, the likes of Robert Wyatt and Soft Machine, and they, they were doing things for me at the time. How did you get into that scene? Where were you exposed to that music? I mean, I, th- I think somewhere down the line, uh, some of those bands were actually on the old Grey Whistle Test. It was 
it wasn't like it would be now trying to get prog rock on television or radio. It was the flavour of the decade, the early part of the 70s, I think. So it was sort of given to you on a plate on the radio shows like, you know, the John Peel show and things like that. So I remember listening. I think I had a Saturday job in the supermarket at one stage. We'd listen to the radio all day long in the butcher's department whilst wrapping meat up. You know, that Fluff Freeman would be playing Gentle Giant and Genesis and Yes. So it was there for you. So that was the music that I started with. And it's never really left me because I think that the music you listen to as a kid, it's always there. And somewhere down the line, even though I went down other paths, I sort of have revisited it on occasion. So I still occasionally listen to Gentle Giant or Magma. Um more so magma, but I've moved on into other spheres as well. Were you ever into pop music? Not massively, although obviously, you know, it's part of your life, isn't it? But I don't know if it's something to do with my sort of mindset, but I always tended to gravitate towards things that were unfashionable. Maybe that's why I, I turned into a snooker player. Back in the 70s, maybe that was unfashionable. And when the 80s came, it went overground. But I don't think um, I was particularly into pop music. Although it was everywhere and you can't escape it. But it is something that I wish maybe there was less pop music and more music from around the world that we listen to. I feel like we've always had pretty narrow banding in the UK, especially. It was quite nice to go to places like France, where they've got lots more influences from other countries. I think you know if you walk around record shops of France or Belgium, you get a much more of a variety than you would do in the UK. Pretty narrow band over here, I feel. I want to understand, Steve, a little bit more about you as a kid. What what kind of kid would you say you were? What was your childhood like? I was really shy. And in some ways, that never leaves you. But I was lucky that my ability to knock a ball into a slightly larger hole with a pointed stick meant that I had to stop being shy and be a TV celebrity. So I, I had that bashed out of me by being chucked in the deep end. Uh, but that was a lot further down the line. So I was a pretty average kid. You know, I wasn't unintelligent, but I wasn't going to be um, brain surgeon material. And just normally going through life, trying not to get beaten up. And I think that was basically my childhood. You try and avoid the bullies at school. I had one mate at school who was into music like myself. And if it wasn't for my mate at school, I may, it may have been a barren time for music as well. So his name was Neil Rogers. And together we sought out weird and wonderful music. So whilst other people were listening to Steve Harley, Cockney Rebel and Deep Purple in the sixth form common room, we were seeking out Henry Cow and Captain Beefheart and anything that was a bit different. And for that reason, I felt quite lucky. But you know, other people in their school years would have had nobody sort of uh, as a friend to sort of experience that with. And others may have had lots of people and that would have been a music scene where maybe you'd have gone further down the road of being a musician, I suppose. How academic were you? I was all right. No disrespect to the school I was at, but it was a crap school. So therefore, nobody was ever going to turn into anything exceptional. So I was in oh, I was in the top stream of my year, but that didn't really mean a lot, to be quite honest. So I, I ended up taking A-levels because that was what you were supposed to do. But by that time, I started to discover snooker and they got left by the way. And I, I took A-levels in maths and physics. I haven't got a clue why, because I've really worked out that I wasn't really good at either. But for some reason, I thought I was. So even that's problematic, isn't it? When you get the choice to do something, when you get the choice to you know, what, choose your subjects, choose what job you want to go into, choose whatever it is in your life you think you're going to be good at, you may not be the best person to judge that. 
I think I'd have been far better off and happier had I gone down a language road, but I didn't. So how was it snooker then? Where were you playing? So um, at that time, snooker wasn't really a game that you could get access to as a kid, but I was fortunate in as much as my father, that was his hobby. And then somewhere down the line, I came along and expressed an interest to want to play snooker like my father. And it was obviously, any time there was anything on the television, snooker-wise, it would be on the television. So Pop Black was on in 1969. I think that was the first year. I was 12 then, so I was lapping it up. And then, you know, I got the chance to play on full-size tables and then realised that I had not just an ability at it, but also had fallen in love with it very quickly. And that's all I wanted to do. It became a total obsession. I can't really describe how much of a succession, but it was just all the time all I wanted to do. And I think for people who become very good at something, it's got to be that way. There's no half measures. You know, I was lucky enough to get the chance to do something that I had this wonderful knack at. And that was me finding something that a lot of people maybe find too late in their life. And then it just becomes a hobby. But um, at the age of 15 or 16, I was starting to want to play every day. And that means you've got a chance to actually make it into you know, not just a hobby, but it could be a profession. And the stars did align because in 1979, the BBC decided to go one step further than Pop Black and show the World Snooker Championship in its entirety. And then the 80s was just a decade of the snooker phenomenon where the snooker players became household names. And I was in exactly the right place at the right time. I turned professional 78. Terry Griffiths won the World Championship with those famous words, I'm in the final now in 1979. And then two years later, I was world champion. Yippee! It was great. <laughs> and at the same time, I bumped into Barry Hearn, who became my manager. And we went on a journey that, um, well, there's no way of predicting how stupid that was. I once asked you, uh, when did you know the time was right to turn professional? Do you remember what you said? Yeah, I was bullied into it by Barry Hearn, who was desperate to set me off on the route to being a superstar, even though I don't think we ever knew what was going to go on. But he got the bug for snooker, for organising it and putting snooker events on. And, and he wanted a pro on his books, not just a young kid who was coming through the ranks. So he was going, yeah, you've got, you got to sign up, sign up, let's, get, let's, let's turn professional. And my father and myself, we would go, oh, I'm not too sure. Yeah, we haven't won anything really important as an amateur. And like, yeah, no, sign this piece of paper. And um, if I hadn't have done that, you know, if I'd have thought, oh, no, I want to sort of do it by the book, you know, be a good amateur, then win the English Amateur Championship before you went any further, then I'd have missed the boat to some degree. So, yeah, I like um, Barry Hearn's impatience. He, he likes to get the job done quickly. When I asked you that question, when did you know the time was right to turn professional, your reply was when I kept beating everyone else. <laughs> well, yeah, we were in Kraken House Festival. I was trying to be entertaining then. I'm not now. I'm just having a chat with you. I mean, oh, some people are listening. Oh, shit. <laughs> well, you do know you're good, but you don't know how good until it's too late. I was playing my heroes and I was beating them in sort of exhibition matches. But when I turned professional, that was another jump. It felt mentally. And I didn't know if I was going to be good enough until I started then beating them. And the first tournament I won was the UK Championship in 1980. And I beat one of my heroes, one of the greatest heroes the game ever had, Alex Higgins. I beat him in the final 16-6. I didn't just beat him, I annihilated him. And this, this happens, especially a lot in sport. People come of age very quickly. They jump up a level. Sometimes maybe they jump up two levels. One minute they're just a sort of like, you know, a young pretender. One minute they're somebody who everybody's predicting might be good. The next minute, they're the best person in the world. 
and you just don't know it's going to happen. I don't believe anybody knows. They may say they do, but I don't think they do until it happens. Six times to win that world championship. Yeah. That's phenomenal, isn't it? Well, yeah, but you've got to realise that um, it was I was six-time champion of the world, but it was not necessarily the whole world. It was the known snooker world. So it was a few Commonwealth countries. And I used to think about, you know, what was it like? I'm, I'm the best player in the world. Well, yeah, the only person that could possibly beat me would be from a sort of like a planet in a different universe where they also play snooker and I wonder if they're all good you know but at that time it was a great feeling to think that you were the best player on the planet but for that reason yeah I never got too far carried away with it but yeah to win it six times was great and then all of a sudden Stephen Hendry came along and took all my sweets away <laughs> took all my prize money took all my ranking points <laughs> But I feel as if, you know, I feel justified in as much as I perhaps I helped him along his way to get to another level. Uh, were you mates? No, I hated him. I hated him. He was better than me in the end. I hated every minute. I, Stephen made me a failure. I was brilliant until he came along. It was the best thing since sliced bread. Next minute, I'm rubbish. Everybody, everybody starts saying, what are you doing wrong? Where are you going wrong? This bloke's better than you. So whilst the 80s was me walking around thinking that I was unbeatable, the 90s was me going around going, what am I doing wrong now that I wasn't doing wrong in the 80s? And I incorrectly worked out that it was my fault. What I should have worked out was that Stephen Hendry was a great player and the standard was getting better. Then maybe I could have dealt with that and I wouldn't have needed the psychotherapy. But as it turned out, what happened was I kept beating myself up that it was my fault I was losing. It wasn't my fault I was losing. I was still playing really well, but Stephen Hendry was fantastic. And then when Ronnie O'Sullivan came along and sort of did the same to Stephen Hendry, I did feel that Stephen did a better job of going, yeah, this guy's great. I wish I'd have probably had that attitude. And maybe I could have enjoyed the 90s a little bit better, even though I had some moments. You talked about how dedicated you were from a, a young age. So does that mean that the music that you loved became a bit second to being focused on snooker? Yeah, I think when snooker came along, it, it all sort of took a back seat for a, a number of years. I did like then start to take an interest in. I was, in, I was living in the uh, you know Essex area, London area, and the pirate radio stations were pretty big at that time. And I'd moved on from sort of jazz rock stuff to jazz funk, and I was listening to the Robbie Vincent show a lot. And that was a, a show that I really enjoyed listening to. He played soul music and jazz music. And it, then he played a seven-inch record. He used to have a little section on his radio show called The Little Label Collection. And basically, they were seven-inch records, seven-inch soul records. You know, the history of soul music is the seven-inch record. And I couldn't buy this in my local shop. So I found him up and found out that the, these places were like only available mail order, these records. So... I went down a soul music rabbit hole and also listened to some of the pirate radio stations that were around the London area, like JFM and Solar, I think. Um, Horizon was one that used to have some good DJs on as well. And yeah, I became a soul boy. You know, the Essex area wasn't a bad area for soul music at that time. And it wasn't Northern Soul, which is the big mistake that most people make. When you say you're a soul fan, everybody assumes for some reason that means Northern Soul the dance stuff, but I was into just soul music, you know, the, the rare groove stuff that was big in Essex and all of that stuff. So that was then what happened to me later on. But by that time I was a pro and the summer months, there wasn't much happening for professional snooker. So I, you know, I remember, you know, just listening to Horizon Radio all day long and buying records down my local record shop, GIFs Records in Chapel Heath and having a great time. So I, I reignited my musical love in a very narrow way, which was just soul. Completely forgot my Canterbury 
and um, prog roots and magma took a back seat as well and it was only when i bumped into a magma record that was a brand new one in a um, virgin record shop in oxford street that i thought oh they're still going that would be good fun to put them on and that was 1988 and i thought wouldn't it be great to see magma in london again it's been like 12 years 13 years since they were back there last so i phoned them up and i had a few quid then because I was world champion and I was buzzing. I was the best thing in the game and Stephen Hendry hadn't turned up. I hate Stephen Hendry, by the way. Did I tell you that? Um, no, I don't. And then the next minute I became a music promoter and we started up interesting promotions to fence off the losses, uh, which were inevitable because I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And I hired Christian Vander and the troupe to come over to the Bloomsbury Theatre in London. We put on three days, which was great because... The first person that walked in the door, he still had his Afghan coat on from the 70s. And the next person that walked through the door had a three-piece suit and a bowler hat and a briefcase. That person had moved on and gone to the city, but still wanted to go back to his roots and listen to Magma. How then did that lead to your radio show, Steve? So in the Essex area, I'm not sure if this was happening all over the country. I don't know exactly the history of community radio stations but I think maybe the government decided or whoever decided that there should be more of the bandwidth uh, released for local community radio stations non-profit making organizations and a friend of mine Paul Golder decided that he really wanted to get out of the job he was in at the time and move into you know owning a radio station and he started up Phoenix FM back in the day it was a month license every six months I think you could get then and I did a soul music show for the four weeks. And then when eventually he got permission for a full-time license, I think in 2009, probably wrong, but I think it was then, he asked me, do I want to continue to do a soul music radio show? And I sort of went, actually, I'd like to go back to my roots a bit and do a show which was more alternative music. So the interesting alternative show was born in 2009, I believe. And I started to reintroduce myself to all the records I had in storage, plus buy new stuff from the artists who were entertaining me in a different way. And I ended up being a radio presenter to, uh, I think, maybe three people on a, on a Monday night. And maybe occasionally, because uh, the studios weren't far off the M25, Junction 28, I think every now and again, a few cars that drove past that junction would have been able to pick up because it was a low-powered aerial we had at Phoenix FM. You weren't allowed to go any further than the end of the street. But every now and again, somebody would have like driven round the M25 on their way to Dartford Crossing and go, what's this pile of shit on the radio now? And then drive past it and it's gone. But for a moment, they were listening to Universe Zero or Art Zoid or Valentin Clastria or a number of overseas bands that nobody really wanted to know about. So I asked to be put on the Monday night show at 10 till 12, like the graveyard shift, the most unfashionable time slot, which I obviously got. I thought, yeah, if I do this Monday 10 till 12, if everybody's turned off by 10 o'clock, it's no different to them going to a computer playlist at 12. So I thought, job done. <laughs> I had worldwide list. I had people tuning in from Australia and everywhere. We had a lot of people from Brentwood tuning in in America, because they thought it was their radio station. The fact that everybody was speaking in, in London accents and Essex accents was a giveaway, but we had a big following in Brentwood. <laughs> Do you think you got the bug for radio? I didn't want to be a presenter. It wasn't something that I really enjoyed doing. I think it's a really hard job. 
I don't think I had it in me to be a presenter. I didn't really plan the radio shows. And I realised that I had nothing to say. I couldn't think of anything to say. You know, I, how you think of things to, you know, to create what you do, Chris. Basically, you create a universe, whereas all I wanted to do was go, here's another one of my favourite records. But I couldn't do the creating of the universe until I came upon the idea that if I invited other guests on, that I could, A, let them play the music so I didn't have to choose two hours of music every week, which was becoming tough to choose two hours of stuff rather than the Phoenix FM playlist, which was, you know, like everybody's got a playlist, which makes things easier. But I was choosing all the music, struggling to keep up with it effectively to not do the same thing every week or to keep on playing the same music. Great. Get some artists in. Let them choose the music for two hours. That's a tip. Then all of a sudden, not only do they share the load of having a chat, but also you get to listen to music you may never have known existed. So that's what I started to do. And then along the way, I bumped into one of my best mates now, Carvis Tarabi, who was in a band called Knife World. And he came on the show. And for a two-hour show, he brought with him 80 CDs. So I realised that he was an absolute music fan. You wouldn't bring 80, would you? You'd bring 20, maybe. So at the end, of, end up, I thought, that, oh, that was a great show. Do you want to do it again? He went, yeah, I'd love to. And the next minute, we're doing it every week. And then we had so much fun because you're bouncing off of people. So if you do want to be a presenter and you don't think you're good enough to do it on your own, actually, you might be good enough to do it with somebody else. And that might work. And that sort of, that relationship sort of led to the band, didn't it? To Utopia Strong. I was happily going along doing a radio show every now and again. And I thought, Oh, that's my musical world. That's great fun. You know, I've been given the opportunity because, you know, sort of a little bit of a face. So, yeah, I got given the chance to, to do a radio show. That'll do me. Every now and again, I'd get an opportunity to do a radio show on BBC, uh, filled in for a couple of DJs when they went on holiday. It was a good laugh as well. But I had no idea what was around the corner when I went to a music venue in London called Cafe Otto to watch a band called Chrononauts play. The first band that was on was a band called Hervé Kalari, which had a gentleman playing a modular synthesizer. And I was watching this guy, Mike Bourne from Teeth of the Sea, as he also plays him, playing this modular synthesizer and going, this thing, it's got no keyboard. Where's the music coming from? It's just wires coming out of it, lights flashing. So afterwards, I went up to him and said, what on earth are you doing? Stupidly, you know, obviously back in the day, I saw Tangerine Dream. The synthesizer was around in the 70s, but the big one, you know, with the massive big telephone exchange. But this little small box that Mike Bourne had, wow, that looks good. Next minute, I buy one and I start to try and get some notes out of it, get some music out of it. And before too long, I was getting okay-ish. By this time, I'm great mates with Carvers. We're DJing, not just DJing uh, on the radio. We started to DJ more than that. We can talk about that later. But... We had a jam. Me, Mike York and Carvus had a jam together just for a laugh, really an excuse to drink a load of beer. And the next minute, we made some music, listened back to it and thought, we could make an album. There's enough bits in this, we could make an album. And before too long, I'm now sitting in on recording sort of sessions where we're adding a bass line or a, a piano line to a piece of music. I became a record producer overnight. It was mad. It was never a plan. It's just stupid. <laughs> We got uh, Rocket Recordings. We gave them the CD, the demo, uh, thinking, well, this would be a laugh if they actually said yes. 
Rocket Recordings obviously were never going to touch it with a barge pole because there was a snooker player involved and they're a serious music label. But they listened to it and thought, actually, this is pretty good. So we shook hands on the deal at Cafe Otto, which was quite apt. And Chris Reader from Rocket Recordings went, OK, so we've got the album, but obviously you're going to need to go out on the road and do gigs to promote it. And Carvus, Tarabi and Mike York went, of course. And I sat there going, what? We're going to have to play gigs. We're going to have to play live. And that was when my life just went even weirder than it was playing at the Crucible. The nerves of that are worse than playing snooker. It's awful. Steve, time now for the first of your five picks from 45 in this record box at my side here. So all the questions are on 45, Steve. So I'll dip into the box. You just say when and I'll pull one out. Oh, when? Are these knowledge questions? I'm really going to be struggling now. 45 random questions. And this first one is, what's your greatest moment on stage? (laughs) Well, obviously, uh, The Crucible is a stage. So it's not about my musical. uh, I suppose winning the World Snooker Championship at The Crucible for the first time is probably the pinnacle. But I would also say that my greatest moment on stage was missing the black ball against Dennis Taylor in 1985, because whilst it wasn't, at the time, my greatest moment, 18 and a half million people tuned in to watch me, the favourite, throw away an 8-0 lead against Dennis Taylor. And Dennis came back and beat me on the final black. And I think even though I lost that match, that probably is the thing that I'll remember the most and is my greatest moment. One of Snooker's most memorable moments, I guess. Yes. And whilst there have been many great matches, Unbelievable to be part of something where so many people can remember where they were when they were watching it. You know, what an honour it is that you've been part of that. I can't really quite get my head around it. So, yeah, for a hobby to become a profession and then the next minute you're centre stage on the biggest event of the year, the holy grail for every player would be to go to the Crucible and play. And then to be the one of the two protagonists that drew in the biggest ever crowd. Well, you know, like... Who cares now what the result was? It doesn't really matter as much, but we did it. We were there and we're still doing the occasional exhibition, chatting about it now. So that that would have to be. But in the musical world, I suppose the fact, and it's not everybody's cup of tea because not everybody would consider it the holy grail of DJing, but we've DJed at Glastonbury. And I wouldn't say we were actually really in line to DJ at Glastonbury. And it probably was the fact there was a novelty factor involved. But we filled up the Stonebridge bar with twice as many people trying to get in the first time we DJed at Glastonbury. There was crowds outside trying to get in. It was one in, one out. And there was two drunk people on stage because we were so nervous. Me and Carver had drunk a bottle of gin to get just enough confidence to walk out there on stage. And we got through the hour and a half without taking the record off we were playing. Yeah, we actually survived. We've been there. We've done it. We've got the T-shirt and everything. We've got the mud. Do you think that uh, people find it weird seeing you, Steve Davis, the snooker player, on stage as a DJ or in a band? Yeah, it's quite strange. Obviously, the people that come along to watch know, but every now and again, if you wander along to a big festival, you know, you've not read, you know, not everybody's reading up on what's going on. So you're stumbling around, you're, you're following your mates, trying to keep hold of where they are. And like, yeah, where's the next beer coming from or whatever it is, you know, throwing up in the puddle or something. And then all of a sudden go, oh, what's on here? Next week, wandering into a room, 
you know, it's like I'm there, like some old bloke, like, you know, like I've never dressed up in my dress suit. We did think it would be quite funny, actually, if I dressed as a snooker player and then just stood there like a little bit like a craft work figure for the first couple of records. And then the third track came on and I just started to sort of move my leg a little bit, just to sort of like a little bit of an acknowledgement of like there's some music going on. There's not unemotionless. And then the third, fourth track comes on and I sort of like start clicking my fingers like that. And then by the end of the set, I'm just <laughs> jumping up in the air doing leg splits or anything. That could be a way. But yeah, it's quite nice when some people come in and say, um, you know, oh, I didn't know you were into music as much. But you think everybody might do, but they don't. Back into the box for a next question, Steve. Say when. When? And the next one is, what is the art of DJing? Oh, that old chestnut. Well, <laughs> we've decided that when we started to DJ, um, what happened was we were... We were just happy doing our radio show, Carver Strabi and myself. And then all of a sudden, we got asked to DJ a tap room in a brewery in Bethnal Green called Red Church Brewery. Um, and it wasn't about the music. It was just sort of background stuff. But we did that. And then the next minute was the lads from Block Weekend contacted us and said they wanted us to DJ at Block Weekend. And we went, well, we're not techno DJs. We don't really DJ electronic music all the time. And they went... We don't want you to do that. We want you as a sort of foil to the techno stuff. We want you to DJ in the pub area of uh, Minehead's Butlins, which is where it was held then. So we did that. BBC iPlayer did a feature on it. And the next minute, the phone rang and our second ever gig was Glastonbury. And we were off and running. The phone started ringing. Well, like We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't have a clue. All we were doing were playing the dance tracks from our radio show that we thought might work. But these dance tracks that we thought might work weren't popular. They weren't well known at all. So we started off going, OK, we're going to educate everybody as to what's good music. But trying to make people dance to music they don't know is bloody hard. It really is difficult. It's far easier to be a wedding DJ and just play what people want. But we put our stall out early on to be divorce DJs, not wedding DJs. We thought, we can do this. But of course, how wrong we were, because you can't go against the flow. So the next phase is to work out how you can filter in a few unknown tracks, but also play known tracks that are not ones that are selling out. So we're talking some really decent music like uh, Tomorrow Never Knows by the Beatles instead of putting Come On Eileen on. Just finding the class tracks of each genre rather than the crap or the obvious. You could be the weird wedding DJs. Yeah, we could be. But then, of course, if you do that, we, we worked out that at weddings, the DJ gets people coming up to them all the time asking for requests and of course, every DJ know that that's the worst thing in the world. You just don't, you know, we, we, we've been asked for Nickelback, you know, it happens. But nobody ever comes up at a funeral and asks the DJ for requests. So that's where we are up to. You know, everybody leaves the DJ at the funerals alone. <laughs> Back into the box, Steve, for another question. Stop. No further. Don't go any, no more questions. No. <laughs> <laughs> What do you wish you'd never done? Oh, so I wish I'd never, in the 80s, turned up at a Tory party conference. What an idiot. I'm so much knocked down that road. I'm a socialist. 
But I turned up during the Margaret Thatcher years and went on stage and I can't apologise to, to the people that hurt enough. That's the one regret I've got. From a point of view of making a, a wrong move and a decision, you know, looking back now, I so regret that. And um, that world of rich people uh, are the ones that uh, control your lives, people that um, get voted in, but they're not the same people as you. And it feels now that I sort of make the observation, I'm not getting too deep on it, but how amazing that working class people have been somehow brainwashed into thinking that conservatives are doing the best job for them. I'm not massive on it, but if I had my time again, I wouldn't have gone anywhere near them. Interesting, because that question normally takes a bit of time to think through for an answer, and we were straight in with that, so that's obviously one that you've thought about. Yeah, yeah, and, and especially as, um, you know, the game of snooker I've always felt is a world of working-class people, and I don't think that, especially the bunch are in now, I think they're a cruel bunch. They're not helping people in the street at all. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Still to come. I think it can make a difference if you're a good person on the planet as to being an asshole. As long as you don't get carried away and think it's anything that you're doing, because of course it's the artists. They're the people who made the music. Another question from the box now then, Steve. Question four, say when. Oh, when? Okay, so this is song titles as questions. So respond to the following. Oh, no. First, what difference does it make? Um, as long as you're happy. I'm still trying to work out these questions. Um, what difference does it make? Well, I think it can make a difference if you're a good person on the planet as to being an asshole. But in the end, we're all going to end up in the ground. So there is the possibility you could go through your life thinking it doesn't make a blind bit of difference what you do, but try not to hurt too many people along the way. Are friends electric? I think they will be in the future because um, if you go down the Blade Runner route, we're all going to have really great mates that are programmed to be our best ever friends. So uh, that's the future, yeah. The only trouble is that's already happened in the chess world and they beat people left, right and centre. One day the robots will be uh, entering the World Snooker Championship in the same way as Isaac Asimov's um, iRobot book starts off, you know, it's just a working robot doing a bit of hoovering. By the end, you can't tell the difference, obviously Blade Runner style But whilst they've done it in the chess world where a computer has been entering into a tournament, somewhere down the line, a robot is going to enter a snooker event and it's going to get slaughtered the first couple of times, but they're going to get better until at some stage when they're beating humans. It's going to happen. In 10 years' time, this will get played back. And prophetic Steve Davis. Uh, thank you, Steve. One last uh, song title for a question. How do you sleep? Well, recently with a nose clip on. Not a nose clip, uh, yeah, nose strip. I had an operation on my nose a while back, and um, I think it sort of closed my nasal passage up a little bit. So I struggled to breathe from my nose, which means A... I snore a bit, but also I've discovered that I have a condition called atrial fibrillation, which is something that a lot of people get as they get older. And so it's an irregular heartbeat. But there is some research, I think coming out of America, that it's breathing related. So if you breathe through your nose properly at night time, I think it can help atrial fibrillation. So anybody who's struggling with it, try getting the nose strips 
which are very clever and open up your nose. A, it may stop you snoring, but more importantly, if you have AF, maybe it helps you having a nose strip on so you can breathe through your nose instead of your mouth. Who knows? Uh, it's early days, uh, but um, there you go. Thank you, Dr. Davis. <laughs> All right, one more question from the box now then. Steve, let me dip in for a final time. You say when? When? How does being a DJ make you feel? Brilliant. It is so much fun. I can't tell you how much fun it is. And of course, we're not a DJ, we're selectors. We couldn't mix a pudding. But when you play music and you're part of the reason why everybody seems to be having a good time, it's a great feeling. It really is. And even if it doesn't go right and you clear the floor with one particular track, we put another one on. But as long as you don't get carried away and think it's anything that you're doing, because, of course, it's the artists. They're the people who made the music. So as long as you go, OK, I've got fairly good taste in choosing what track comes after the next one. Yeah, that's all right. I seem to know what's going to keep the buzz going in the room. But don't get too carried away with yourself because really all you are is a facilitator. So right, Steve, they were your five questions from the box. I've got one last question for you. It's the end of the world and you have to play the last three records on earth. What would those records be? Oh, wow. Well, obviously, I play very long tracks because uh, we get a little bit longer on the planet. So I'd go for MDK by Magma. That's 30-odd minutes long. That's a good one. Uh, Mechanic Destructive Commando from their third album uh, on A&M, 1973. I definitely have to play something from Robert White's Rock Bottom. We play Sea Song from Rock Bottom. And the third track, I'd have to play one of my own. I mean, how pathetic is that? I think I'd have to play, for the fun we got out of making it, from the Utopia Strong's first album, The Utopia Strong, uh, because we couldn't think of a better name, I'd play Brain Surgeons 3. Brilliant. Because that's just a banging track. What a way to go, those three. Then we can just explode. What a way to go, yeah. Steve Davis, you're a legend. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. And that was How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from. 